This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The one became the many, and yet they were still one. Each human adventure would be the question and the answer in one. Valeria Tellez interviews Michael Brown, the author of Finding the Field, an adventure of body, mind, and spirit. Michael Brown was born in the remote Chatham Islands of New Zealand in 1948. He lives in New Zealand and is married with four children. His early life was traumatic, including forced committal to a psychiatric hospital. To take back control of his mind, he began a long, intense, and often painful search for understanding of how the universe works and his place in it. That search included a degree in physics and a journey to find a secret abbey in the Andes. The answers he found led to his book, Finding the Field, an adventure of body, mind, and spirit, which expresses the five universal truths of existence. He has been a reporter, director, and presenter of news and current affairs programs for Television New Zealand and has worked on Second Mint to the BBC. Meet Michael at michaelbrownbooks.com. Here is the interview with Michael Brown. In your own words, who is Michael Brown? I'm a New Zealander. And uh, for those of you, your listeners who don't know where that is, uh, think of Australia and flying three hours to the east and south. And we're a a group of islands down there. Uh, I'm otherwise known as a Kiwi. That's our national bird symbol. I've, um, and who am I? I have been a teacher, a sailor. I've been a reporter. I... And most of all, because I'm here, I guess, I've had one or two experiences that led to writing this book. Yeah, and the book is titled Finding the Field, an Adventure of Body, Mind and Spirit. So since you mentioned that, talk to me about that. Uh, What was the inspiration and the purpose of writing your book? To get to the book, I need to go back to a couple of the experiences I had as a young man. Uh, which are vivid in my mind. They're seared across my mind. The first one, I found myself in a bare observation cell in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, I was naked. There was nothing in the cell whatsoever. And there was a, a tall viewing window where the observers with white coats had their heads stacked one on top of the other. It was a very narrow window. And it was, without doubt, the lowest point in my life. Uh, nothing else has ever matched it. 
but I'm telling you about it because in that moment when I turned away from them, I, I still had a sense of modesty, I guess. I turned away from them and turned my back on the observers. I realized that I had been there not because of what the universe had done to me, but because I had made a series of choices. And that was the traditional light bulb moment. It was a turning point for me. So I, uh, I worked on that. Um, I started making choices actively and got myself out of that psychiatric hospital in about three months. Yeah. Um, I know you'll be wondering what I did. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, um, I went crazy is the only really way, real way to put it. I drove a car from my city, Christchurch, towards the mountains. Uh, it wasn't exactly suicide, but I was planning to climb the Caroline face of Mount Rolleston without any equipment, which would not have succeeded. <laughs> And they, I ran cars off the road, I ran a police car off the road, and they eventually blocked me on a bridge and took me to that psychiatric hospital. So that's the background. And if you go on uh, a couple of years, I found myself on the Altiplano in the Andes, the Andes, uh, South American Andes, uh, about 17,000 feet, and I was uh, starved of oxygen. I had no oxygen on my back and I was crawling across the snow. And here's the second experience that went right, right through me. I suddenly was outside my body and felt the connection with, with everything, everything, the rocks near me, um, there was a little animal called a visgacha in the snow. Uh, that one, all people, all distant things, uh, everything was one. And it just, I was crawling, but I came to an absolute stop and, and um, was watching myself come to an absolute stop when all of that came to me. That's a feeling that repeated once many years later, but I've never quite had it in the same way again. So that started a great search in my mind. What on earth is it all about? I, I had to know. I became quite desperate to know, uh, having these experiences behind me. And gradually I got a feeling that the truth of what it's all about is a little bit like knowing that there is an invisible train passing nearby. I can hear it, but I can't see it. If I can only just see it and remember it, I can swing up onto it. And that's what most of my life has been like, is swinging up onto that train and walking down the corridor. And would you say that the reason for us to make bad choices, because I made tons of them too, would you say that's the disconnection with the oneness of everything that there is? I think the disconnection is when we decide that the universe controls us. And if we decide the universe controls us, that is when we make bad, painful, horrible, sometimes dreadfully painful choices. It's only when we feel that connection that I described on the Altiplano in the Andes 
It's only when we feel that kind of connection where we can really take a positive uh, stance on making our decisions, making our choices, on our thoughts, on our attitudes, and start even looking at the deep beliefs that are driving us. What are they? Are they doing anything for us? Are they doing us any good? We can change those by changing our thoughts. It's a challenge to to put into practice, right, Michael? How can we make that a practice? It's always a challenge. Look, I've laid out these uh, five universal truths in the book, but that's in no way does that mean that I live a life of wisdom and everything like that every day. There are choices every day, even when you realize all these things. And it has to be that way. Otherwise, we don't have our creative life dramas. Oh, wow. Is that something that's necessary for our human experiment? <laughs> of course. Uh, I um, I don't know how far you've got into it, but the, uh, the main principle behind all this is an attempt to describe what it's all about. And here's my summation of it. It's all about a giant feeling. The universe is a giant feeling, a deep longing to know itself. And what that boils down to is the universe is essentially saying, what am I? And it keeps creating what it is to find out. Our equivalent of that is, who am I? And, the quest, and our lives, our dramas are the answer to that. So we are the question and the answer all in one. Why did you choose to write fiction rather than nonfiction, although there are some uh, nonfiction elements there? It's, there's actually um, quite a bit that uh, is, is nonfiction, but I've put it in a fictional context. And the reason for that is that is, I guess it's the way I read books when I began. I got much more from stories than I did from intellectual thought. So my idea here is that when people read Finding the Field, uh, they identify with the characters and that hopefully will make them feel what's going on, make them feel the truth of the five universal truths. It's going on a journey, taking them on a journey as an experience and not just an understanding, intellectual understanding, right? Exactly. Now, if I go back to that moment when I was on the Andes crawling across the snow, uh, another thing that came very quickly after that to my mind once I had when I knew I was going to survive, was that the, I need to backtrack a moment. I was, I was there looking for a lost Abbey, a missing Abbey in the Andes. And I thought initially that that was where I would find the truth from very wise beings who would tell me what it was all about. And after that experience on the snow, I realized the, the nonsense of that. It was about the journey. It was about the journey, not the destination. And uh, well, it's a, a wonderful moment, a wonderful realization, which, which means we don't have to always be at that wonderful place we think around the corner. It's the going around the corner that we can get our peace, our satisfaction. So the truth can only be experienced. Nobody needs to go even on that kind of journey. You, you do not have to go seeking for truth in the traditional way. Uh, look, you, you might have heard about the horse. Look, <laughs> going out to look for the truth is a little bit like riding out on a horse. 
to look for it, like riding out to look for the horse. So you ride up the, uh, up the hill and you look around and you don't see it. So you pull on the reins a bit and you ride around on your horse to the next hilltop and you look around and you can't see the horse. You're riding it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Right within us. True. We, we just have to see that it's there and remember that it's there. We know deep down within us that, that it's there. What do you do, Michael, like every day? Do you have a practice, a reminder practice about going back to that, knowing that it is there already within you? Is there a practice more effective than others? Yes, there is. It's um, living in the present moment, mindful thinking. And that then connects me with easily back with all of these uh, universal truths that I've been writing. Talk to me for a moment about what life is, what death is, and what is the balance between them? Life is consciousness answering the question, what am I? Mm, all of life, everything, and include the minerals and the rocks. That's all to me. It's life. Now, if we, you asked about death, and that's actually one of the five principles. You, you don't die. The, the, this whole thing is a misunderstanding, and I'm blaming, <laughs> I'm, I'm blaming the rise of technology in the last 300 years, the Renaissance for this. Science did us a big disfavor. Science started to teach us that, that, the, that reality is physical and that anything else is a bit of a ghost in the machine. Actually, it's around the other way. Mind is everything. Mind does not stop. Consciousness does not stop. The physical stops. And I think you can see where I'm going. We just leave the body behind. The question I ask about the balance between life and death, it might be just what you said earlier about being in the present moment, being here now. If we're here now, you're not subject to tomorrow or yesterday. But I, I can see what you were hinting at there, I think. If you're in the present moment, uh, the balance of things uh, growing and fading away is right there as well. Yeah. Is that what you were alluding to? It's a continuum of some sort of the unknown itself. That's what comes to me, is the unknown. You have thought about these things very deeply yourself, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, I have searched for the truth in my own way, in different ways, and going out there and changing, making a lot of change. Yeah, that always comes back. It gives me peace. I think that's what it is. When I read that in your email, you said, well, let's talk about the five steps to inner peace. And that's what it is, inner peace to me. That's what it's all about, the acceptance of, of life and death and everything between here and now. Yeah, the acceptance of the side of life that most of us try to avoid all the time, but actually pain, sorrow, sadness are just as valid as the other side of life. Right. Yes, and that is a tough one, yeah, for us to um, integrate, yeah, the darkness. They, in psychology, they say the shadow and the light or maybe the um, 
what's that idea? Nying nying, those the light and the wholeness itself being both everything at the same time, the paradox. Yes, each each contains the seed of the other. In fact, it's it's a gift. We life would be impossible without opposites. Our dramas would not be there. And we need those dramas to ask answer that question, who am I? The dance, yeah, to be in a human body, that is needed. It's not that the fun, it's not just because it's playful and fun to be a living duality. It could not be different. We would not exist in a human body without these both elements coming together. That's, right, Michael? That's right. And I see this um, illusion that we are separate as a necessary part of forgetting. Otherwise, the drama would not be real. Mm, yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just that for those of us who are desperate, and that's what I was, for those of you who are desperate, remembering where we came from can be a great help. Remembering that we, we are essentially one. Look, I have an image in my mind for this. If you imagine... Actually, what I'm describing here is the first universal truth. Can I do that? Or is yeah, that a bit soon? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. All right. Well, look, the, the first one is, is the hardest one to get if you've not been thinking like this. It's that we are entirely, entirely the creator of our own realities because perception is everything. And here's my image for explaining it. If you and I think of ourselves as islands, on the, think of it, the South Pacific, which is where my country country is. Uh, smaller, you're a small island. I'm a small island. Yeah. You can have a palm tree on it if you like. Oh, yes, normally we just <laughs> no, normally we just think of ourselves as the part above the water. But each of our islands goes way down, way down, very, very deep, and those are the parts of us that are truly powerful. And we feed them and we make them. And if we go down deep enough, your island connects with my island and everyone else's island. And there you can start to see the oneness of it. And down there, to come back to the idea that we're creating our own reality, down there are all the very powerful beliefs that we have, so powerful that you can actually rearrange, that they rearrange the physical universe around us. That's where we're doing the creation. Now, it sounds outrageous, doesn't it? If you've just been mugged or your house has been broken into or you're, um, you've got children who are sick, it seems dreadfully outrageous and even ludicrous that we might be creating that ourselves, because, particularly because there's a sense of it must be my fault. No, nothing like it. It's cause, not fault. And the cause comes originally from the thoughts that you have. Um, look, I think it was the Buddha, yes. He said, all that we are is a result of what we have thought. The mind is everything. What we think, we become. Now, you think of all those thoughts that trickle down below the island, deep down, deep down, where they become beliefs and they become powerful beliefs and we start to see the universe that way and that is how we perceive the universe that's how all the bad things and the good things happen to us right what comes to mind is uh, past lives do you believe that exists that we keep moving from one body to another and accumulating all these belief systems 
Not as a single entity, no, I don't see that. Uh, I certainly do see coming back and back, but if you, if we go back to where the islands meet way under the sea, there is a melding of souls, a melding of spirits. And if one, if you experience uh, something in this life, let's suppose that you have experienced being a thief, then that part of you after death um, melds with other parts and thinks, right, we'll have another experience that may show you another side of this coin. So it is, um, would you say evolution of the soul? I, I would. It's Well, the whole thing is evolution, of course. The whole creation is an evolution. But as for a single soul, uh, if we start to think that it is just if I start to think that it is just me, my soul, as I perceive myself now, I think that is too limiting. I think that after I die, I will uh, meld with other spirits, other souls, and together we decide on another personality. It won't be the same personality at all. That sounds interesting and fun, as long as we're not creating our own suffering. And even then, yeah, because there's a timing underlying all this too. We are at different levels of consciousness. So it might be that, yeah, we don't have a choice when it comes to deciding. The choice, the choice though, is there. It is a choice. Everything is a choice. Look, if you take, um, just, just thinking of while we're living, if you take a thousand people through the same experience, you get a thousand different paths come out of it. It, it's not what happens to us. It's what we choose to do about it. So it depends on the level of, of awareness, right, Michael? Would you say that? Absolutely, yes. And the more um, I, I'm delighted with the reaction I've had to this book because people have realized how much more choice and freedom they have over their lives. Right. I love what you said about the, the island uh, metaphor. But meeting, if you go deep enough, then you see that everything is one, everything's connected. It seems to be separate on the surface, but deep enough, we can see the connectivity of it all. That's beautifully said. And that is uh, the second universal truth, as we're speaking of them. Oh, no, it's not. The third is the uh, everything's connected. So talk to me about the second universal truth. Your life is a mirror. Well, actually, can I go back to the first one for a moment? Yeah, Because I'm, absolutely. I'm, I'm itching here to read yeah. you an, an ancient story. Yes, yeah. The first one being that you are the creator of your reality. That's the one that gives people the most trouble. And, and we talked about the choices there. Right, here's a story that comes from the campfires of the Sioux Native, Native Americans. I'll read it to you. An old man and his grandson are sitting by the fire outside the teepee wrapped in furs and gazing into the leaping flames. High on a snowy ridge, a wolf howls at the moon, and another answers from far away, and soon after, the old man removes the pipe from his mouth. Grandson, he says, there are two wolves inside you. One is white and the other is black. What are they doing there, grandfather? asks the wide-eyed boy. They are fighting each other, says the old man. The boy considers this and then asks, why are they white and black? The white one is your love, your peace, and your truth. The black one is your fear, 
your anger and your lies. And the fire crackles and sparks flare in the night, and the wolf on the ridge howls again, and the old man puffs contentedly on his pipe. And finally, the boy says, which one will win, grandfather? Ah, says the old man, removing the pipe once more. The one that wins is the one that you feed. So I go back to the fact that we choose our thoughts, we choose our responses. We don't have to just do it instinctively from out of, the, out of our amygdala. What a wonderful reminder. In some traditional spiritual traditions, they actually speak of no mind, no thought, not even engaging at all with thinking. What is your perspective on that, Michael? On those rare occasions when mm. I can make that happen, yeah. and it's only for a short time, <laughs> <All right. laughs> Tell me about that's, that's when all of this floods over me again. Yeah, still mind. Someone did some uh, research, I think, on some uh, Buddhist monks in New York and found that even those highly trained people can achieve it for only a few seconds at a time. It goes back to um, those experiences of insights. I call it spiritual insights, mystical experiences, but they don't last that long, right? And then we go back to the reality of thoughts, and that's when choice, it, it's so, I mean, comes into play, and that the more aware we are, the more we can see them. Some people, they connect aware. They say the same thing for consciousness. Do you connect those two words, awareness and being conscious? Being aware and being conscious, are they the same? I'm thinking. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Uh, the, the thing is that word consciousness is very tricky. It's got, um, you've got all sorts of connotations of what it means. But to be aware in the sense of being expanded out into the universe, that is, that is consciousness. Capital C. Talk to me about the second universal truth. Your life is a mural, an interesting one too. <laughs> when I look in the mirror, I see a 72-year-old mm. man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we have to do better than that. Look, uh, this will surprise you, but I want to start that by talking about where modern physics is, science. They have made discoveries and now I better just say in this world of, in this post-truth world this is not fringe science I'm about to tell you this has been replicated many times and the discoveries have caused one commentator to say that physicists are battling insanity and here's the discovery you'll be aware I'm sure that scientists have been searching for the fundamental particles of the universe um, the word boson comes to mind there they've been searching and they have gone down deep and deep and deep into their uh, systems to find how these tiny, tiny subatomic particles are behaving. And here's the result. <laughs> the behavior of these fundamental particles depends on what's going on in the mind of the scientist. The existence of the fundamental particles depends on what's going on in the mind of the scientist. Can you see what that does to, to uh, modern science? They found their mind in there. They found their mind 
in there, in these subatomic particles, which are not part of them. Your life is a mirror. Now, Einstein saw this coming uh, back when he was alive, and he hated the idea. He said he likes to think that the moon is still there, even when he doesn't look at it. But do you see the implications? We create everything around us. Just because, say, if I think of an elephant right now, that doesn't mean an elephant is going to walk past the window. It's the accumulation of our thoughts, our attitudes, our passions that go deep down below that island that I talked about, the island of our surface self, deep down, deep down, and accumulate till they become very powerful beliefs and creative attitudes. Right. Hey, can I, read you, can I read you another story? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I love the way you read it too. Because <laughs> this is about your life being a mirror. And I think this is one of the wisest, wisest ancient stories I've ever come across. This comes from the, the Sufi masters. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, Sufi is a mystical form of Islam. Here it is. I love this. A stranger enters a village and immediately looks for the Sufi master to ask for advice. He says, I'm thinking of moving to live in this village. What can you tell me about the people who live here? And the Sufi master replies, what can you tell me about the people who live where you, you come from? Ah, says the visitor angrily. They are terrible people. They are robbers. They are cheats. They are liars. They stab each other in the back. Well, now, says the Sufi master, isn't that a coincidence? That's exactly what they're like here. So the man departs and is never seen in that village again. Soon, another stranger enters the village. And he, too, seeks out the Sufi master for advice. And he says, I'm thinking of moving to live in this village. What can you tell me about the people who live here? And the Sufi master replies, what can you tell me about the people who live where you come from? Ah, says the visitor in fond remembrance. They are wonderful people. They're kind. They're gentle. They're compassionate. They look after each other. Well, now, says the Sufi master. Isn't that a coincidence? That's exactly what they're like here. Life is a mirror. And the Sufi master knew it. So one was welcome, one was not. Everything that it's here, it's of our own creation. It's our perception, really. There's a practical way to deal with it. Yeah. You don't have to go around mystically looking at everything and seeing through it. There's a practical way. Uh, if, for example, you want people out there to trust you, you have to trust them. If you want to, uh, to be loved, you have to love. And then the world around you mirrors what's going on. It, you said it before. You said it a couple of times, I think, in, in this chat we're having, that it comes from within. Make things happen from within. Deep within, <laughs> I have to add. Yes, deep, deep within. within. Yeah, not just beliefs and values. And that's when uh, sometimes I ask the question about beliefs, values, and intuition, imagination, intuition, and knowing. Do you see a difference between them, Michael? Like clear difference or feel a difference? 
Okay. All right. Let's go. I want to go back to the island idea. You and I are islands on top of the of the water, but deep down are our increasingly powerful belief systems. If you think, for example, that a certain um, let's take racism. If you think that uh, a particular group of people are inferior, that's just thinking. You might or might not alter your behavior accordingly. Go down below the surface of that island where if you've been thinking that stuff for a long time, you start to, to firm up those ideas. It becomes a shallow belief. And then if, you, if you've been thinking about it for years and years, it becomes a firmer belief and your actions start to reflect that. And if you go even deeper, it becomes what I call an assumption belief. Mm. You just know. And you can see the problems with that. Right. I think in the States, you've been seeing lots of problems with that. Right. What was the moment in time? Was that moment in that mountain that you <clears throat> realized this or... This has been a continuous uh, discovery, exploration, those truths. It just, was just a moment in time where you just realized everything as an insight. It was that moment. And the challenge since has been how to express it. Yeah. Because yeah. contained in that moment of connection, um, while I've called it the third universal truth, actually, you can see the others in it. The yeah. others are right there. Right, right. So... so Meditation, living in the present moment, um, those devices that connect you with consciousness are connecting you with all those other things as well. These so-called five are different windows on the same one wonderful thing. And I love the way you say that. The one become the many, and yet they were still one. Each human adventure would be the question and the answer in one. Yes. Thank you for exploring that, Michael, for having the courage to go deeper. I, I don't think I had any choice. I had to get it off my chest. Right. <laughs> That's interesting. Now we talk about no choice. Is that something that could happen uh, to you? You're just flowing life and you're not choosing anymore? <laughs> you're just life itself? Actually, I used the phrase too loosely. I was, <laughs> I felt driven to do it, actually. Yes, I, I sound as though the universe made me, but no, it was my choice. I really wanted to do it. Uh, it, it had done such uh, terrific things for me. I, I was a very desperate person in my early life, and uh, I, I had to have this. And I had that moment on the Andes and thought other people might get something from this, and particularly people that desperate, and it seems they do. It sounds like a compassionate um, perspective of sharing what you have found so you can ease the suffering. I thank you for that too. It's a bit of a contradiction in me, I've got to tell you. In my, my normal attitudes to life, having done all this, I do feel uh, a compassion for people. And yet, you need both sides of the coin. You need the, the joy and the sorrow. You need the good and the bad, the up and, and the down. Our lives, it just, life makes no sense without both. So part of me, yes, feels that compassion. 
but part of me stands back and says, there's actually not much to be done. I'm not going to go out there and stand on a street corner with this stuff because the world, the consciousness is functioning exactly as consciousness does. Uh, it's all, it's all there. Even today's worldwide problems and the high levels of anxiety that will resolve itself. Yeah. It's all happening <clears throat> as it should because it is all connected. Right. So there's nothing wrong, really nothing that needs to be fixed. That's right. And that will be, and I'm sure that will be offensive to many people. The fourth universal truth you have been talking about, the now is the moment that matters. So being here now. And the fifth is you will live forever. So that idea of death uh, or the idea mm. that we never die. Okay, let's go back to the fourth one, uh, that you are already in your spiritual home. I, I, this must seem outrageous as well to many people. If um, if you've just <laughs> if you've just lost a lot of money or you're sick or something like that, then for someone like me to come along and say you are in your spiritual home right now, that seems uh, ludicrous. And yet, the drama of that and how you respond—that is the—that is the challenge. It's not the time when. You've got your money back and you're well again. And it's not about that. It's about how you respond to the more difficult situations that happen, uh, that seem to be happening to you. Realizing that they're a necessary part of your life, that that's, this is what you're supposed to be coping with. And it's not about what the event is. It's about the choice you make right now. How do you go from here? When... Um, I had children, I had, uh, my wife and I had two sons when I came back from this Andy's trip. And we've had a, an enormous benefit in bringing them up for, for many reasons, but one in particular that illustrates this, that when the boys got in trouble, and they've been in trouble many times, <laughs> it's not about punishing them. It's about sitting beside them and saying, okay, well, this has happened. What choices have you got now? What's the best thing to do? And that has had tremendous benefits in their well-being. It's the same for all of us. Yeah, it's love, isn't it? Unconditional love. I hadn't thought that, but you're right. It is. Yeah. Yes. What can we do about it, right? How can we choose better from this moment forward? That's the way to address that. To, well, first up is to know that you do have choice. We hear, the phrase, we hear the idea all the time, I didn't have any choice, I had to do that. There was no choice. But of course there's choice. And to just to have that realization that it is a choice is a hugely liberating thing for many people. And it also means that you don't have to be tied into dogma. I, I particularly have it in for religions who say that theirs is the only way and you've got to follow their particular dogma. I think that's an incredibly limited thing. It's a straitjacket on people's lives. But the freedom to choose. Oh, well, having said that, I want to read you another story. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is one of my favorites. This is to do with not being bound by dogma and finding heaven, really, in knowing that you're in your spiritual home even when bad things are happening. Here we go. An old monk and a young monk journey through a forest, and eventually they come to a stream. And there, waiting anxiously on the bank, is a beautiful woman. 
She tells them that she is afraid to step into the water, which is swift and swollen by the rains. To the astonishment of the younger monk, the older immediately offers to take her across. She accepts the offer. She climbs onto his back and clings tightly to him as he steps carefully through the stream and safely out the other side. She thanks him and waves the two monks farewell as they continue their journey. They walk in silence until the younger monk can bear it no more, and then reproachful words pour from him. How could you allow yourself to commit the sin of touching a woman? And the older monk looks at him in surprise and says, Are you still carrying that woman? I put her down back there by the stream. I relate very much to the older monk. <laughs> There's one other thing I want to add while we're talking about the, the, the fourth universal truth already in your spiritual home. Once you realize that, you don't have to suffer. You can Pain, yes, you, we can't be without pain. That's part of our life drama. But pain does not have to mean suffering. And um, I'm, I've just remembered something right now talking to you that I, I must have been onto this very young because as a boy I had a trick when going to the dentist. I, the de they had grinding uh, little bits that they came from the treadle that the dentist was pressing. This is when I was very young. And it was very painful to get into a tooth like that. So I had the trick of mentally putting myself by the doorway and watching the dentist work on my, my mouth. And I felt far less um, of a bad time. I could feel the pain. But it was far, far less. And I think that is, that is the difference between suffering and pain. And once we know that this is actually what we are, this is reality, this is what we're having to face, then we can see it as pain but not have to suffer as much. It goes back to choice, doesn't it, Michael? Being aware of the choices we have. It always goes back to that in a way. Yep. Besides that everything's connected. We're, we're, conf we're confronted with multiple corridors every minute of the day, multiple corridors. We choose which one we go down. Ironically, the easiest one is the one of no resistance. To me, it has been the practice, the main practice. Recently, I have been talking to uh, a man who's very high up in, uh, in, a, in a version of karate in the world. He's one of the, the, the one of the most respected martial arts people I've ever come across. And he gave me a wonderful idea for acceptance. When we have a very an unpleasant emotion, we don't like it. Let's let's take one that's clearly unpleasant. Jealousy. Right? Jealousy. You could be its victim, but no, you can control it. And here's the idea he gave me. When the emotion turns up and knocks on your front door, open the door and uh, know it for what it is, allow it to exist. You don't shut the door. You stand back and observe it, and you watch it as it walks through your house and out the back door. And that's allowing, allowing, um, accepting, and releasing. That's a wonderful way of um, seeing that, that as a symbol. Yeah, I love that, Michael. 
Yes, yeah. Accepting, welcoming, even, and then releasing at the same time in a way. And and you will have noticed the, the distance you are from your own emotion there. That gives you the control. You're standing back, observing the emotion. That puts you in a bit of a different place. You're no longer at its mercy. Wow, emotions. That's another fascinating topic because that's part of the drama of being a human body to just also <laughs> give it. It certainly is. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's the... And, <laughs> to, I keep trying to go back to practical because all, a lot of this is very esoteric. P um, emotion or passion is the answer to achieving what you want. That's the answer. It's a combination of passion and, um, and taking the first step. Uh, I, I rather admire a former president of yours, Jimmy Carter. When he was a peanut, a peanut farmer, He walked around in his local town and said, I'm going to be president of the United States. Mm. And he took step after step until he was. Right. But, but let's go to the, back to the passion side of this. It's got to be the right passion. If, for example, I wish I had a million dollars, that wish um, might or might not be fulfilled. It depends on the passion because there are two passions involved here. One is I desire strongly the million dollars. The other one is, I just hate it that I am in poverty all the time. Right. And both are creative. So for most of us who are convinced we know at a deep level that we are in poverty, wishing for a million dollars isn't going to get us far. Right. It's the passion. We get what we are most passionate about. Yes, a billion times to that, creating more of that reality, right, of following our passions. And there's trust involved in that too. I noticed that trusting that that passion will reconnect us with what life is all about, this understanding that there's the one, everything is one, not two, and all these wisdom. That's what I trust because I love the idea of having purpose and all, but coming from that place, that the depth of that understanding. I think you can have purpose and live in the moment. Because knowing that it is about the journey towards that purpose, you can, then you're in flow. You mentioned that word earlier, you're in flow with life. I love that, Mike. I love your wisdom, of course. <laughs> I, can, I can hear that passion for life in your voice and the way you talk. <laughs> has been a, a wonderful journey, especially the one when I discovered that, you know, there was a lot more to life than just my limited ideas of it. That's when everything changed. That's when free, that's when freedom starts, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. I was able to just laugh and smile for no reason, even just be here now and satisfied and that peace just I think it just arises from that place. We don't we don't chase peace and happiness and all that. And joy, really. I, I like joy better, that word, for some reason. It kind of arises from that state of being, isn't it, <clears throat> Michael? That has been my experience. Just be and it will be. Yep. And don't chase it directly. I mentioned the horse, but there's another me metaphor for that. <laughs> If you the chase these things directly, it's like chasing a butterfly that can't be can't be caught with your hands, but stop and turn around and relax and the butterfly will land on your shoulder. 
So we're almost at the end and we still have one universal truth to go. And I have a couple of questions for you, the ending questions. So yeah, talk to me about that, Michael. The fifth universal truth, you will live forever. Now, not having lived forever f from after this life, um, you've, we have to take this that I can't bring you back logical proof and a certificate. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, it, but it is a natural outcome of the other four universal truths. Mind is the generator of the physical, not the other way around. Sometimes, some scientists now are starting to break ranks on this based on the, the modern discoveries of physics and the and. The, the, that the existence of the fundamental particles depends on the mind of the scientist. So mind stays. Mind cannot die. There's a scientific principle that you um, energy can be neither created nor destroyed, uh, and that actually should be extended. Maybe one day it will be to consciousness cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only change its form. So we go, it seems when we look at an old person who dies that their personality dies too, but our perspective when we look at that is of is our perspective attached to the physical body. What we don't see normally is that mind is fully there, uh, spirit is fully there. It's one of the reasons if I am with someone who is dying, I'll keep talking to them. Someone in a coma, I'll keep talking to them. I visit my father in his grave. I'll talk to him. Yeah. Mm. It goes, you cannot cease to be. Yes. And when you say not cease to be, because be, it's all there is. So everything mm. else is an illusion, right? There is just that. One thing I'm certain you can expect is that the other four universal truths will keep on right on going. After you leave your body, you keep creating your life. Everything around you is still a mirror. It's far more direct, of course. Everything is still connected. And you're already in your spiritual home. So a lot of this becomes pretty obvious now. And an interesting thing, and I've read accounts of what happens to people who've had near-death experiences is that your beliefs will continue for a while, the beliefs that you accumulated in this lifetime. For example, if you believe that you're going to be met by a luminous being, let's say it's Jesus or the Buddha, you will be. You will, doesn't matter which it is. If you believe that you go to hell, even though the idea in a physical sense is nonsense, you will go through a place of suffering because your belief system, your knowing system, put you there until you realize this isn't necessary. If you believe that there is no life after death, if you've been listening to those traditional scientists, then when the lights go out, you'll be wondering about the lights going out, and then you'll be thinking, how can I be aware of that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then the light goes on. That resonates so true to me. And I wonder, like, what is that that resonates true to the mind? What part of me? And that the answer is always that knowing that's within, that we know it, the, the truth that we know it. We don't have to explain it away. 
but it's always there. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for sharing your wisdom, timeless wisdom. What a pleasure to talk to you about it and, <laughs> and to explain it. And I, I've got to thank you for the opportunity to do it. Thank you. It has been fun, a lot, a lot of fun to listen to you, the way you tell the stories. Um, yeah, it's spiritual fun, I call it. So I have a few more questions for you. Let me see. Let me ask you this one. What is your idea of success these days? What is to be successful to you? It's to be in that moment. Success is the journey. It's not the destination at all. It's in that moment of peace and joy and loving life. Mm. Yes. Thank that, you. That's... That's the journey and the destination. Yeah, all one. It goes back to that one, right? Being in one, one. thing. Yes. Just for me, it's that time crawling across the snow, trying to survive and suddenly getting it. The whole damn shooting match. And what is another word for healing? Love. Love, Love would do it for me. Again, that same moment, of that moment of connection, of realizing that it's all one being, that is... That is love. Yes, a billion that times. Yeah. Inst, inst, that realization is instant healing because of that instant connection. Yeah. And my last question is, what are three things about life you wish everyone to know before they leave the body? To know, I can't answer your question. What I want them to have is that, that peace, that all of the future, all of the past is now, and that that now will go on forever. Now is forever. The idea of future and past is a man-made invention. Even the scientists will tell you that. Is that three in one? Powerful. No, I, yeah. I didn't. Message. I, <laughs> I couldn't give you three. I keep, <laughs> as you've seen, I keep going back to that same thing, <laughs> that sense of all being connected. There lies the peace. Uh, there lies the healing. For people who are sick and desperate and having a terrible time, I, I've really got to recommend this, this stuff. And as I said at the beginning, I wrote it as a novel so that they can identify with the characters who are going through these painful things. And through going through it and understanding that it's necessary, there's the healing, there's the love, there's the peace. Thank you so much again, Michael, for sharing this healing wisdom as you do. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks, Valeria. <laughs> and before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects? Well, the, uh, the website to look for is uh, michaelbrownbooks.com. I'll have that on your podcast profile. Anyone can Google the, uh, the name of the book, Finding the Field, Michael Brown, they'll find it. Yes, I can have also the link, the Amazon link on your podcast profile. I'll do that. That's right. Yes. They'll find that I've written one or two other books as well. But this, this to me was the big one. Thank you so much again, Michael. And we'll talk soon. Okay, Valeria. Bye. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Michael Brown and his work, please visit michaelbrownbooks.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. <laughs>